0: Numbers chapter 9, we saw last week that God has given final instruction to Israel. He's about to take Israel upon a trip throughout the wilderness. They're about to make their move, and so God is setting them in the direction that they need to go. This is an 11-day journey, as I've said so often, that took over 38 years to complete. Why would it take so long? Because God's got purpose. It's never about getting from point A to point B. It's in the midst of point A and point B. That's where God meets us, in the midst of the point A's and B's of our life. It's where he ministers to us, where he cares for us. It's where he prepares us and he does this amazing work. Now, the wilderness we've seen as we studied Deuteronomy through to Leviticus and now Numbers. It's a time of training. It's a time of growth and dependency upon the Lord. All of these things go on because what God is teaching you, and a lot of us have entered into the wilderness, really it's a place of immaturity, we enter into the wilderness when we first come to know the Lord, we don't know, we know very little about the Lord, and the Lord starts that time of teaching and training, now some of us have gone into the promised land, the blessed Christian life of obedience, but then we kind of turned around and gone back out into the wilderness, and it can be even a more brutal place. But again, we spend time on the wilderness until our faith in God is matured and our hope in the Lord is able to keep us through all that we go through in this life. And again, as I said, the promised land, promised land is not heaven. Heaven is heaven. Promised land is the blessed Christian life. There's still going to be battles to be fought inside the promised land. There's going to be failures and temptations at times. But when you're truly in the promised land, Because of your faith in the Lord and your dependency upon him, the Lord keeps you and watches over you and he blesses you. How long will it take you to journey through the wilderness and into the promised land in your life? Same thing with Israel, just as long as is necessary. Just as long as is necessary for God to achieve his purposes in you. And so you may have this person here and that person there. That person may be able to just take the 11 day journey. Maybe they got strong faith and maybe they're truly seeking after the Lord right out of the boat or out of the camp. And then you've got this other person. He's going to wander around for quite a while, wander around for quite a while, quite a lot of lessons to be learned. But Philippians chapter one, Paul tells us in verse six that you can be confident each person here, each born again believer, you can be confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. He's going to be faithful. He's not going to give up. He's going to continue to work. If you walk away, he's going to follow after you. If you're truly a born again believer, nobody can snatch you out of his hands. Nobody can snatch you out of his hands. And God is going to be faithful all the way to the very end. Matter of fact, that's exactly what he says. Being confident of this very thing that he would begin a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What's the day of Jesus Christ? We studied oh, we studied it on Sunday morning. Day of Jesus Christ is the rapture of the church. And so he's saying throughout the church age, this is a promise to the church, I'm going to continue that work. I'm never going to let you go. I'm never going to give up. If it takes 38 years, then God is going to be there for 38 years. Hopefully it doesn't take that long for us. So What we're looking at in chapters 9 and 10 is the final planning and preparation that were needed to be taken care of before the big move, and we've divided it up into six, six sections. We've looked at a couple of them. Last week, we saw the instruction on the lighting of the lamp. Secondly, we saw the consecration of the clergy. Thirdly, tonight, we're going to see the participation in the Passover. Then we'll look at the guidance of God, and then the significance of the silver trumpets. And then lastly, they leave. They go. So last week we saw the lighting of the lamp or the menorah that was in the tabernacle that was to be a light. This was in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. We saw that this is fulfilled in three different ways in Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, in the church, who is to reflect the glory of God into outer darkness, and Israel, who was to be a light to the Gentiles. Then we saw the consecration of the clergy or the Levites in chapter 8, verses 5 through 26, and we saw it was a four-step process. There was a cleansing through the sprinkling. A sprinkling, probably sprinkling rather than a washing. If you recall a couple of chapters ago, we looked at the sons of Aaron, the priest, who were washed with water. The Levites, well, they were to be sprinkled with water more than likely because there was 22,000 of them. That would be a lot to wash, not so hard to sprinkle. Uh, what it was a picture of was the washing of water, of the, of the water that is the word of God. If you're going to serve God, you must be washed with the word of God. See, if you want to serve God and you don't know the word of God, you really got nothing to offer. Maybe a willing heart, but that would be it. But it's got to be a willing heart that is seasoned and washed cleaned with the word of God. Because ministering, you got to have something to give. It may not even be a vocal teaching ministry, but even your actions need to be guided by the word of God. And so who were the Levites? Well, if you remember, basically... They, they assisted in the sacrifice, not the killing of the animals so much, but the herdings of the animals and all the care and keep, but also the taking down and the setting up of the tabernacle, which was a pretty big project. They were hauling off all of the boards and the and the, and the curtains and the implements that were used in the tabernacle uh, and, and even the sacred things, except for the Levites would take the ark of the. Uh, of the covenant upon their shoulders. But nonetheless, there was a lot of physical labor that was involved, but still they needed to be cleansed by the word of God. There was the forgiving through the sacrificing. There was a sacrifice that needed to be offered because sin always needs to be dealt with because sin will always bring a separation between man and God. So we constantly got to be dependent upon the sacrifice. Them, it was a constant sacrifice for us. It was one time for all the Lord upon the cross. Thirdly, there was the identification with the substitution. The substitution, well, the Levites were the substitution for the firstborn of all the other tribes. If you recall, there was about 22,000 Levites that were fit for service And there was 22,000 firstborn of all the other tribes. Actually, I think it was 22,200, somewhere along those lines. And the other 200, they had to be ransomed for a price. So there had to be equal representatives. And so these Levites were representing all the tribes, the firstborn of the tribes, which were the Lord's. And then fourthly, there was the presenting as an offering. It said that Aaron presented the Levites as a wave offering. They were that living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In Numbers chapter 8, verse 22, it says, After that the Levites went in to do their work in the tabernacle of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. So they did it. That's a mouthful. That's a blessing. They were called to ministry, and you know what they did? They did it. How many people have been called to ministry and don't ever do it? It's, it's always somebody else. The problem is somebody else has gotten really tired. Somebody else isn't doing too good because everybody's always saying, well, let somebody else do it. And somebody else, he never has time to sit in the sanctuary because he's always doing all the ministries. And then somebody else, well, the other day, somebody else, he collapsed from exhaustion. And I thought, "Oh no! if somebody else isn't going to do it, then who's going to do it? And I said, somebody else, what's the matter? You've got to serve because nobody else is going to serve. And he goes, well, I guess you got to get somebody else. And I said, you are somebody else. And then he said, I guess then there's nobody else. And so it can't be somebody else. It's got to be those who hear the call and those who do the work of ministry. Those who are faithful before the Lord. Because you can look at this and say, man, that was just an amazing time. God was saying, separate the Levites. If I was a Levite, I'd be separated and I'd be with them and doing it. Well, God still calls the same way today. God still does the same exact thing. So if you were going to do it then, you ought to be doing today. You ought to be just as faithful today because God is calling with just as an audible voice as he did back then. There's no denying it. Now, as we enter into chapter 9, we have the participation in the Passover. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. So they're still at Mount Sinai. In the first... Excuse me. In the... (laughs) cert. In the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. Now, a little bit of a timeline here so you kind of get things straight where we're at. Now, a tabernacle, the tabernacle, was completed and was raised up on the first day of the first month in the second year after they had come out of Egypt. Now, The the month of Nisan, it was when Israel was released from Egyptian captivity, and God said, you are to make this the first month of the year. So this is the first day when the tabernacle was completed in the first month. If you would equate it to our calendar, January 1st. And it was two years after they had come out of Egypt. Now, on that, and and by the way, you know, when I say they wandered in the wilderness for 38 years, and you're thinking, I always heard it was 40. Well, the first two years was going from Egypt, wandering around before they came or until they came to Mount Sinai. They received the commandments. They received the instruction for the tabernacle. So now at this point, it's been two years. They still have 38 more years. Secondly, on that day, the 12 tribal leaders, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, there was on that day that the 12 tribal leaders brought their offerings that we saw in chapter seven. And it was a process that took 12 days. Then on the 13th day, the Levites were consecrated. And now we arrive at the celebration of the second Passover. The first Passover being while they were in Egypt. So right off the bat, there's two years they haven't celebrated this meal that they were commanded to celebrate every year on the 14th of Nisan. Verse one, now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month, Of the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time, according to all its rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. So Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover, and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. Notice that the date date and time is continuously repeated because again, this is the day of the law and you've got to do things exactly according to the law, according to the commands of God. And so they kind of messed up for two years, hadn't celebrated it, but they're celebrating it this year. So main element in the celebrating was the remembering, remembering, because the children of Israel were to never forget where they came from, remembering that it was God with his mighty hand, or even as the magicians in the Egyptian court said, truly speaking of Moses's staff, but this is the finger of God. They recognized God behind the power of God behind what the children of Israel were able to accomplish, or at least what God did concerning the plagues. They were to remember how God overcame the most powerful nation of the world. And just as truly as he did back then, he continues to do today. Not so much casting down nations, although he is able to do that. And we've read to the end of the book, he will do that. But he was able to overcome the world in your life. And he still is able to overcome the world in your life if you seek after him. And how he set his people free. How he set them free. Now there's a lot of responsibility in freedom and If you look at we're going to go through chapters nine and ten tonight, if you look at chapter eleven, it's not part of the text, but the publisher of my Bible, he's kind of put titles over some of the chapters and and this first one is Israel complains, Israel. The next one is Israel complains. As soon as they get out there on their own, they start whining and complaining, kind of like how you guys were doing a minute ago about the air conditioning. (laughs) But they were to never forget. It was God who set them free. Throughout all the generations of the Jews, they were to never forget this. Why? Because it's their testimony. It's their testimony. It's God working in the lives of men. Going back to, I'm not going to turn there, but Deuteronomy chapter 7, God didn't choose them because they were great in number, because there was anything special about them. But God put his blessings upon them because they were meek people. So take your Bible tonight, go home and go from cover to cover. And all the people that God used in a mighty way, maybe I should say about 90% of them, are people that are no different than you are. There's nothing special about them. Remember, 1 Corinthians, God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And we've been very foolish people, haven't we, in times in our lives. But that's okay. Those are the kinds of people that God uses, and God does great things through In Exodus 13, chapter 8, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verses 8 and 10. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord, or Yahweh, I am, did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that Yahweh's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, Yahweh has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Now it's using the term Lord. I use Yahweh. What does Yahweh mean? It means I am. And so he's talking about the God who is. The God who is, is mindful of you. Teach your children this. Teach your children that the God who exists met you in Egyptian bondage. And again, we need to be doing that because, well, it was their testimony and it's our testimony as well. And our testimony cannot be denied. They can come up against our doctrine. They can. Lambass us in so many different ways, but they cannot deny our testimony what God has done in our lives. That's who I used to be. this is who I am now. Why we know it is, because it's the God who is worth these things and continues to work these things in our lives. For us today, for us today, it was that great changeover from the Passover meal to the communion meal. Not that the Passover meal has been continu- or, um, fully done away with but nonetheless, the communion meal. Communion meal is what we celebrate today in way of remembrance. In verse 14 of Luke chapter 22, it says, When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. So there's going to be no real Passover, if you will, until the kingdom of heaven. But as for now... It's the communion celebration. We just celebrated it last Sunday. Communion celebration of the looking back and what God has done. Remember what he said, celebrating the Passover. Look back and remember what I've done. We need to do that. Only we look back at the cross. But also look forward. Because if you're looking back as a Jew in the Passover, you're also realizing that the Messiah, I've got this great promise of Messiah. Well, we look back and we see Messiah has come, but we also know he's going to come again. And if I'm still around when he comes, he's going to come and he's going to take me. This is the witness of God's mighty hand in our lives, how we overcame the world and set each one of us free. And throughout all the generations of our families, we can never forget this. I've got to teach my children and I can't just teach my children. Jesus loves them this they know because the Bible tells them so. I do need to teach them that that's very important but it can't just be emotional. It's also got to be intellectual. I've got to teach them and train them because, yeah, there was the emotional. There was the day that I came to Christ. It was very emotional. But what did God start doing in my wilderness time in my training time? The intellectual, that I would come to know him and understand him. And what did that do? That just increased the emotional. The more I came to know him and understand what he did for me, the greater I loved him. But I've got, we've got to teach our children the intellect. Now, it can't just be all intellectual because that's not good either. But for a lot of us, we kind of so easily forsake the intellectual. We just, you know, God and, and Jesus and the, the happy stories that are in the Bible. But they've got to know the good, the bad, and the ugly, if you will. They need to know the reality of God in our lives so they can relate to the reality of God in their lives. We've got to teach them. We've got to teach them that God is a very personal God. And really, that's our intent here at our church. We use the answers in Genesis curriculum. And uh, it goes through and it speaks of evolution. It goes through and it prepares them intellectually to go into their classrooms in the secular schools. The majority of our children go into secular schools and to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within them. And so, again, our testimony is important because nobody can deny what Christ has done in our lives. I need to make that real in my child's life so that God is not just some abstract loving man up in the sky, but he's a personal God that moves in their lives that will teach them, but also correct them when it's necessary. He's a God of judgment, but he's a God of grace that they must come to him through faith. Now, the remainder of the chapter of chapter nine, first, we've got an issue in verses six through 12. What if somebody is unclean during that time? My father drops dead. I'm the oldest, or maybe I'm the only one. And so I've got to care for him. And so I've touched a body and I want to participate in the Passover, but I've touched a body and dead body and I've been rendered unclean. Well, God's made an allowance for this. Again, verse six. Now there were certain men who were defiled by a human corpse so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron that day. And those men said to him, we became defiled by a human corpse Why are we kept from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time amongst the children of Israel? And Moses said to them, stand still that I may hear that the Lord will command concerning you. And so Moses did the right thing here. He's seeking out God. And what's God's will and God's direction? Well, God gives him the answer. He says on verse 11, on the 14th day of the second month, so a month later, at twilight, they may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And so they're able to celebrate their testimony just as sure as ever, surely as everybody else. But then in verses 13 through 14, there's a warning not to take God's grace for granted. Don't take this day of, uh, that I am giving you on the second month of the 14th. Now, that was for those guys, anybody who ever happens to be defiled or unclean, I guess I should say for whatever legitimate reason. Now, don't take this to procrastinate. Don't put it off and say, well, I'll just take care of it on the second month because he knows how we are. He goes, no, you have a responsibility to present yourself before the Lord in celebration of this meal on the first month of the 14th day. Now, again, if there was a particular reason you couldn't do it, well, then that's okay. God's gracious, but not for your procrastination. Maybe I should even be a little bit stronger than that. Not for your disobedience. You serve a holy God. And a holy God said to celebrate it here. Now, I don't have to celebrate that. And these commands do not go through to the communion meal. Although I personally believe that the communion meal is a command. And we do need, we are required to celebrate it. Uh, We're not given a specific date. You know, the first Sunday of the second, you know, all that stuff. But nonetheless, as it's presented, I really feel a responsibility to partake in it. But, I also need to see, well, God has given me commands in my life. God has given me callings in my life. And I must be faithful in those things. I can't procrastinate in those things. I remember there was a man who was a minister on church at a a church. And um, his pastor had asked him to make a hospital visitation. This person was telling me about this. And uh, it just didn't feel like it that day, that night. He just didn't feel like it. And, and, you know, it was was quite a bit, quite a ways away from his house and all. And he just decided, well, you know what, I'll just get up a little bit early and I'll go in the morning. And so he got a call real early in the morning. It was the pastor. And the pastor says, you know, you were supposed to come and and visit that person last night. He goes, yeah, uh, actually, you know, he's convicted. I'm going to go do it this morning. Well, don't worry about it. He died last night. And again, you know, time is of the essence in our Christian lives. There's people out there right now. They're dying they're going to hell. They're dying and going to hell. I just saw a whole hospital full of them over there in Ontario, a kindred hospital. It's a place basically where people go to die. And there's room after room after room of people who are just, you can tell they're just on their deathbeds. And so time is of the essence. Today is the day of salvation. Don't take God's grace for granted. Great tragedy in closing out this chapter. This would be the last Passover that would be celebrated by Israel until Joshua led them into the promised land as excited as they were to celebrate it. And all of these things, they did not celebrate the Passover for another 38 years through unbelief, through absolute rebellion and disobedience. They, they did not fulfill God's wishes in their lives. And you see the dynamic of these people who perished in the desert because well, they were living their lives according to their own will and according to their own way. And really, the tragedy was this testimony was not told, and the light of the witness did not shine for all of that time. Now we're told Second Timothy chapter two again. There's those four generations here. I really love this verse. It says, "...and these things you have heard from among uh, heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." There's just a whole lot right in that little verse. These things Paul's writing, these things that you have heard from me, from the Apostle Paul, who's heard heard them? Timothy has heard them. So there's the Apostle Paul. He's ministering to Timothy and he's saying, commit these to faithful men. And what are these faithful men going to do? They're going to teach others also. And you could just keep going with that. And really, it's infinite. And so again, you see the necessity and you see the value of your testimony. And for you to vocalize that your generation should have something to tell the generations concerning you, how many people's here, how many people's, how many people here were parents are saved? Anybody? Okay. Maybe about third or so mine, aren't, mine were not saved for the longest time. Um, At some point, what was going on in my family line, it had to stop. It had to stop. I didn't rise up and say this has to stop, but it had to stop. You know, the flesh and the world. At some point, it had to stop. And at some for whatever reason, because God is gracious, he he, he put his finger on me. He says, it stops here. And as much as depends upon me, I need to make sure that that is so. I need to teach and train my children. So that when my children or my children's children or my children's children's children look back in the generations that were previous, they see that something happened. Something happened in my lifetime that changed the course of my family tree, branched off in a different direction. Actually, it branched upward and see that something happened there that was so profound that it altered the course of our clan, if you will. It altered the direction that we were heading. And no longer was it in the flesh, but it was towards the Spirit. And not only that, but it had influence in other branches that were part of the tree, other members of the family and, and, and friends and, and just so many other different people, but especially those whom I know I've been given responsibility to, my children, and then my children's children. And I pray that I, if the Lord tarries, that I would still have influence in even my children's children's children, my great-grandchildren and it would affect the generations in the future until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. No guarantee that they're all going to walk strongly with the Lord, but as much as depends upon me that I did what God had called me to do, that I gave of that testimony of the Lord and what the Lord has achieved in my life. Next, we have the guidance of God, verse 15. Now, on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud, this the, to symbolize the presence of the Lord, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony from evening until morning. It was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So during the day, it was a cloud. You have the tabernacle as it's sitting there. We decided last week, if you were here, it's 15 feet, which is about the width of these rows of chairs. And it goes all the way back to that back row, about 45 feet. So it's about that size. And over that, would be this pillar of cloud during the day, and at night would be this pillar of fire. And so the Jews would be well aware, because remember, they couldn't get close, other than the Levites, they couldn't get close to it. So if you're stu- you're, you're the tribe of Nephilim, and you're way in the back back there, and all, you, can, you can't even see the tabernacle, but you can see the cloud. And as you see the cloud, or you see the pillar of fire, you know that God's with you in the camp. Naphtali, not Nephilim. Nephilim were giants that got killed. Naphtali. or Gad, or we'll use Gad, you're the tribe of Gad, you're Gadites, And, and you're so far back you can't see, but you can see the pillar of fire, you can see the cloud, and so again, you know that God is with us, that's the purpose of that, now the glory of God is filled inside that holy of holies, but there's that pillar so that all know that he is there. So it was always, verse 16, the cloud covered it by day, and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle after the children of Israel would journey and in the place where the cloud would settle, then the children of Israel would pitch their tents at the command of the Lord. The children of Israel would journey and at the command of the Lord, they would camp as long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained encamped. And when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. And so it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped. And according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Whether it was two days, a month, a year, that the cloud remained above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped, And not journey, but when it was taken up, making this very clear, they would journey at the command of the Lord. They remained encamped and at the command of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And so that cloud and what that cloud doing to the Jewish mind was God's command for them. When it rose, it was time to pack everything up. Keep in mind, when it rose, the glory would depart from the tabernacle. And so the priests could go into the Holy of Holies. They could take everything apart. The Levites could touch the things that they were allowed to touch and all of that stuff. There was kind of the freedom to do that. And then when they would go back and assemble it, then the glory would come back. And then they couldn't go in there. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies or touch any of the stuff. Or at least they would die. And so all of this, all of this should give them a boldness. Because they should have this boldness knowing that they are in God's will. That everywhere they go, that God would lead them. So this is how an 11-day journey can turn into a 38-year journey. I mean, God could have just brought them out into the middle and just camped there for 38 years. And that's where they would be for 38 years. If they would have wandered off, then you're wandering out of knee, or from underneath the shadow of God's wings and out of the place of his protection and blessings. And you would be left to the, the perils of the world. The greatest desire that a born-again believer should have apart from his salvation is to be in the will of God. Because if you're in the will of God, you're in the perfect will of God, you're immortal. Nobody can stop you, nobody can touch you. Yeah, people will come against you, there's no doubt about that. But if you're in God's will, then how can anybody possibly do anything contrary to you? Now, I've talked about this before, and I, thought it, I haven't talked about it in a while, so I thought it'd be an opportune time to do so and go through it fairly rapidly there's these two concepts that you hear in Christianity or maybe um, um, in just Christian talk. The perfect will of God versus the permissive will of God. Well, to be in the perfect will of God is to live your life in submission to the sovereignty of the Lord. It's to know what God has called you to do and then you're doing it. It's to know that He desire, what He desires of you and then spend your life doing it. It's doing, your, doing what God is either preparing for doing that going forth and doing it excuse me it's been said a successful man is a man who finds out what God wants him to accomplish with his life and then fulfills it the true measure of a man's success is not his social status or bank account or his influence and fame it is simply in doing what God wants him to do now generally speaking what does the Bible say is that is God's perfect will for our lives I'm just going to go through this list quickly 2 Peter 5, 9 tells us God's will for you is to be saved. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, a thankful spirit. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, it's God's will that we be submissive subjects. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, God desires a sanctified soul. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6, it's God's will that you would not harbor hypocrisy in your heart. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, God wants you to be trustworthy with your time. And then Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, kind of the totality of your life. It says, let us hear the conclusion on the whole matter. It's God's will that you fear God and keep his commandments. Now, this is God's perfect will. What is God's permissive will? Well, to think that God even has a permissive will is to not know and understand the nature of God. The best description I can give you of God's permissive will is sin that he does not instantly condemn you for. Nowhere in the Bible are we offered to pick behind what's door number one, door number two, or door number three. God is not Monty Hall. God's perfect will for Israel is that he would lead them and they would follow. God's permissive will for Israel, he didn't just kill them all in the wilderness at their disobedience. To call man's desires God's permissive will is to blame God for your sin. Now keep in mind what sin is, it's just missing the mark. Now, if you're not obedient to God and you call something his permissive will and you're doing it, you're missing the mark. Because if that's the will of God, why would he allow? Well, you know what? If you don't want to do this and you want to do that, well, then that's okay. I'll permit it. No. Now, he lets you do it, but it doesn't mean that this is his permissive will. It's not his will at all. It's sin. You're missing the mark. Israel, it was God's will that he would rule over them. But in first Samuel chapter eight, verse 18, and you will cry out in that day because your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. It's God was God's perfect will that they have a king and the king would be God. It was his permissive will that they would make one of themselves one of the kings. No, he let them do it. No doubt, but that was sin. And there was great repercussions from them doing that. And so, again, it all boils down to God's perfect will is his actual will. God's permissive will is my will that I want to hang upon God and blame him for it. And there's just no such thing as God's permissive will. Then as we enter into chapter 10, we've got the significance of the silver trumpets. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work, and you shall use them for calling the congregation And for directing the movement of the camps. Now, these two silver trumpets were used by the priests. Now, there is the shofar. That would be a, what was it? That was a ram's horn. That was a ram's horn that was used for a lot of the festivities. These will be as well. This is not the shofar. These are different horns, but they were used for well four main purposes: a convocation. They were used to assemble the camp at the door of the tabernacle for a mobilization to call the heads of the tribes together to signal the camp movement because of confrontation to sound the alarm when the nation was under attack and because of celebration to serve as a memorial at feast and festivals. And so they didn't do group email back then. They didn't have text back then. And if you had to let millions of people know something was going on, they would use these trumpets. These trumpets apparently were... Pretty loud. I, I believe that these trumpets were probably supernaturally loud. But anyway, it's just what God used to direct his people. What we see is, once again, God is in the details. God has thought all of this out. Remember what he's doing? He's preparing them to move through the wilderness. And so he's thought of all of these little details. And then lastly, what we'll be looking at in verses 11 through to verse 36. I'll just read a few of these verses. They get up and they go. God said, it's time to go. When God says it's time to go, what do you do? What do you do, Bertie? There you go. (laughs) Verses 11 through 13. Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month. So this is after the first Passover, after the Passover for those who were defiled. The 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of testimony. It had to be an amazing thing, especially for the first time. There you are. Then all of a sudden there's this rumble that's going throughout the camp. The cloud has raised. The cloud is raising. So for the very first time, they understand the glory is no longer in the tabernacle. It's time to disassemble it. The priests are doing what they need to do. The Levites are doing what they need to do. Everybody's starting to break their camps. They're getting in position because they've been giving the position as we're not going to read through it. But the the man or Judah is to go first. And we see that's a, a fulfillment of Jesus Christ and him leading the way. And then all the other tribes are to follow after that. So they're preparing for all of this. Again, verse 11, Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journey. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. Paran's a little bit north. I believe it's northeast, but it's north from where they were. Um, I believe it was a journey of about 30 miles or so. So God just kind of gave them their first little bit here. And so they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And then looking over at verse 29, in in between it just tells of the orders of the tribes in which they departed. Now verse 29. Now Moses said to Hobab, the son of Raul, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well. For the Lord has promised good things to Israel. And he said to him, and Moses said to him, I will not, I'm sorry, Moses' father-in-law said to him, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and to my relatives. So Moses said, please do not leave as much as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness and you can be our eyes. And it shall be, if you go with us, indeed, it shall be that, Whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same will do to you. If you could speak to Moses, you'd tell Moses, Moses, you've got God. You don't need him. You've got God. Even some of the best leadership, well, there's only one perfect leader, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Lord Jesus. So we, we imitate leadership only as leadership imitates the Lord. And so Moses, this is just a little bit. Now, if I'm there and I've got these millions of people that I'm leading through the wilderness, I don't know if I'd have perfect faith either. He was kind of hedging his bets here, hedging his faith here, if you will. It's not a good thing, the thing that he did. The Lord kept it from happening. The Lord wasn't going to allow this because the Lord was to be the leader. They were to be following the pillar. They didn't need eyes in the in the desert. They didn't need an experienced guide. Why? Because they got God. They got the Lord to lead them. Verse 33. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day, and they went out from the camp. And so it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. And then chapter 11, we're not doing chapter 11 tonight, but in chapter 11, then started the whining and complaining. And it's just an amazing thing you've got God. Now this, you can't pin this on Moses. You've got God. You've got this pillar and this cloud that are leading you and they still whine and they still complain. I'll leave you with that thought. Father, we just thank you once again, Father, for Lord, not only just the the, the things that had happened so long ago, Lord, and, and you're letting us know of these things, but the application to our lives. And Father, I pray that we would grasp on to these things, the celebration of the Passover again, just simple obedience to God and to do those things. And father, we see how they failed Lord, the silver trumpets. You see that you communicate to your people, Lord, that nobody is left out from the greatest, even down to the least, the guidance of the clouds, So father, that we would know your will and be in your will and, and, and continue to be blessed in your will. And then father, the getting up and going, I pray father, that we would be found faithful and Lord, you can say what you want about these people. And, Those of age will perish in the wilderness, but they did get up and go. And so, Lord, they did make that first step. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would be people who are found faithful in your sight. According to your leading, Lord, may we take those steps of faith and continue, Lord, on that journey. That, Father, we would truly find ourselves in your promised land. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless us, that you would keep us, that you would watch over and protect us, Lord. And all that we do, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please?